for most of us, when we think about the Middle East, I think that we feel overwhelmed, scared. We feel like the Middle East might be hopeless. And I think it makes sense. I think that for so many of us, the Middle East feels so foreign. It feels so, I don't know, it, it feels like something I can't connect with. And honestly, that's been my experience for years. I just think about things like ISIS and what's going on in Iraq and Syria. And I think about all of that and I get overwhelmed and I get scared and I get frustrated with my lack of knowledge and I I just want to block it all out. That is until I've came across Preemptive Love. There's this amazing organization called Preemptive Love. They're based out of Iraq. They're an organization, but more than them being an organization, they're this movement of peacemakers changing the way that we engage with the world's most polarizing conflicts. And they do that by confronting fear with acts of love. It sounds really simplistic, but what they do is so complex and beautiful and important. And oh my gosh, it fills me with so much hope, you guys. It's incredible. If you've been following along with the good newsletter for a while, you've probably seen us share some of preemptive love stories. The work that they're doing in the Middle East is some of the most hopeful, encouraging, and inspiring work I've seen. It gives me so much hope and so much perspective on what's going on in the Middle East and how I can be a part of it. Preemptive Love is founded by my now friend, Jeremy Courtney, who, man, I admire this guy to death. He and his family live in Iraq full time and they live out this idea of loving your enemy and choosing hope and bravery and peace. They embody this idea of living your life on the front lines, of of doing things that matter even when they're scary. Jeremy and his team have been in the most complex, scary situations. They've been surrounded by ISIS. They've been under attack by bombs and machine guns. Like They are putting themselves at total risk to care for and love the people that nobody else is stepping out to take care of. In many situations, they are the only people showing up to give aid to people in real danger. I seriously have so much admiration for Jeremy and the whole preemptive love team. Oh my gosh, I I really am blown away by the work that they do. And so I wanted to talk with Jeremy about that. And so that's what we did. This week's episode is a conversation with Jeremy about his story, how he even ended up in Iraq. It wasn't necessarily natural for him. In fact, it, it was a long process and it was scary for him as well. We talked about what it's like to live your life in that sort of situation, what it's like to love people in a way that seems crazy. It seems out there. It seems like maybe you're going too far. Like you don't need to love that much, but he does it anyway. He shows up anyway. He loves people anyway. Oh my gosh, it's just so powerful. This conversation left me with tears in my eyes, with goosebumps up and down my arms. You're just going to have to hear it for yourself. Let's just jump straight into the conversation. This is Jeremy Courtney at my studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. Here we go. So you just got back from Somalia. And by back, I mean you live in Iraq. You went to Somalia for a little bit. You are in Nashville visiting really quick. 
Um, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. <laughs> Been up since 3.30 a.m. Oh jet my lagging. Gosh. Yep. And I'm pretty sure that that's the norm for you. Like, jet lag's not a big deal at this point for you. No, kind of live a little bit. <laughs> a little bit on the edge of tired all the time. Oh, my gosh. How much time are you spending in Iraq versus just other spots in the Middle East versus the States? You know, what does that look like? Because you, your home is in Iraq. Your family's in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, home is Iraq. Family's there now. That's the resting heart rate goes back to Iraq every time. Mm. If, you know, work might take me out of Iraq, meetings in the States or some exploratory work in other countries, or we've got ongoing work in Syria um, that I might visit. But, um, you know, Iraq is home maybe three to four to six times a year. I'm probably in the States. Okay. Okay. So you and I have hung out now twice in the States. Probably all four or six of those times. (laughs) Um, I've been following your work for a long time. We've connected a few times over the years. We just spent a bunch of time on the phone the other day. Um, I've just been a huge fan of the work that you're doing and the work that Preemptive Love is doing. But I don't know if I actually know the full story of of your jump into the Middle East. And, and, I, and specifically, I say the Middle East because I feel like what you've done so well is humanize so much of the Middle East for me. It started with Iraq, then Syria, then, you know, all these other places. And when did you first become interested in the Middle East? September 11th, 2001. Really? When coming out of class at Baylor, uh, started hearing these whispers that some plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. And then as that day continued to unfold, you know, it, it seemed like the day before, September 10th, no one... I knew was talking about Islam. No one was talking about any of that stuff. And since September 11, 2001, it seems like we haven't stopped talking about mm. it now. And, uh, you know, the early rhetoric, I guess, is still with us. Um, but it was kind of new, at least new to me at that time. Who are these people? Why do they hate us? Why do they hate our freedom? Why do they hate our way of life? And uh, I, didn't, I didn't know if that was true or not. But that was what was being thrust upon us. And so I think in a lot of ways it started as an exploration to, to understand what September 11th was really about, mm. if, if anything, yeah. and, and what that might mean for me and the future of my life and our friends and our country and all that. What did that look like from that day at Baylor to the day that you visited Iraq for the very first time? What, what was that time in between like for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because, you know, if if I'm on stage and going to condense this whole story from September 11th to, and then I was in Syria, you know, <laughs> or Fallujah or whatever, it it can sound a lot more amazing than it is. And it's actually a lot of tiny little steps mm. one at a time toward the thing that scared me most at that time. And so... Muslims were the scariest thing in the world on September 11th, 2001 to me. And we started taking small, not, we didn't even take steps first. We actually, what I've learned is if you want to go in a certain direction, you got to change the direction you're looking. Hmm. You, you follow your face, you follow your neck, you know, you're like your, your head leads the way, your literal head leads the way. And so if you're not, if you're not looking in the direction you want to go, you're not going to walk in that direction. So I think it started with not even a step, but a posture, changing the the posture. And then as I found myself looking toward Muslims and 
and learning about Muslims, uh, the next step I took was really to get on an airplane and go to Turkey, mm. which is a country that, that bridges Asia and Europe. Both um, culturally and physically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Literally, the country is in Europe and in Asia. And so, and, and culturally, it, it feels like that in certain parts. It feels very European and it feels very not European mm. in some ways, in some places. And so that was a, a great intro because, I mean, in my mind, I was walking sort of into the lion's den, which it was for me at that yeah. time. Like it was about as scary as anything I could imagine doing. And then suddenly Turkey became normal. Then we ended up moving to Turkey. And then from... And a, what year is this? Like 2004. So that this is... We moved war, in four. This is like war in Iraq Is going. Time. Okay. Is going by that point. Um, you know, but it takes some time to ramp up to move overseas and all that. So we had made the decision to move probably by 2001. We had actually wow. visited and made the decision to move somewhere around there pretty quickly, 2001, 2002. And moved and then lived among Muslims and experienced terrorism ourselves and experienced the toll that terrorism takes on Muslims who are innocent victims of terrorism. And with the Iraq war playing out to the south of us, started becoming more and more interested in in Iraq and what was going on there and headline news about the debacle in Iraq and the botched war effort in many ways eventually drew us into Iraq. And... Um, yeah, so it was many, many, many little steps along the way before we decided to move into a country that was at full-blown war. Yeah, and it is interesting that it wasn't it wasn't a big jump. It wasn't a big leap um, because I think a lot of people might be thinking, oh, I want to do that. Like, I want to understand what's going on. I want to be able to humanize people. Like, I want to be there, but I could never do that. And the truth is that you didn't do that either. You right. just took little steps and, and made your way there. When you moved to Iraq, what was the immediate response from loved ones at home? Like, what were people thinking? I guess you'd already made tiny steps, so it wasn't a huge difference. But That's right. The, it, it's, it's more that that because Iraq is always in the media and we have this pre, these preconceptions, it does feel like a bigger step. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think that. I think I was almost let down by the mm. lack of pushback that we got from our family. <laughs> I was like, no, maybe maybe you didn't – like, Iraq. We're going to Iraq, <laughs> like the one with war. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah, we knew. We knew you were going to. Turkey was the big deal for them a couple mm. of years prior. Turkey was – and honestly, even before moving to Turkey, it was it was visiting Turkey right after 9-11. That was like – Honestly, like tears with some of our family members and pleading with us, do not, do not be so foolish to go to this 99.9% mm. Muslim country right now. They will kill you. And there may have been bribes and things like that involved for wow. me to not take certain daughters and wives of, you know, my, my in-laws didn't want me to take their daughter, my wife, to on this visit, you know, this one-week visit to this country. And why did you feel so inclined to fight back against the bribes and the pleading? Like, what was on the other end for you? I, I don't know if I would have known how to put it at that time, but I think the word you've used, humanization, I think it was, it was a draw to, to know them on their own terms, to know them in their own words, 
to have unmediated relationship with Muslims, with people on that side of the world, everything we know is mediated on some level. Mm. And, and the real gift is to have an unmediated relationship with someone. The fear that everybody had was that you were going to be hurt or killed or, you know, whatever these extreme things are. Have you in your, you know, now over a decade spending time in the Middle East in, in some of the most dangerous places in the world, what have been the greatest risks you've experienced? It's a great question. Um, on some level, those who cautioned us not to go were, were certainly right. I mean, they weren't crazy. They We're all watching the same news headlines. I mean, things are blowing up in some of these places and snipers are shooting in some of these places and people are dying. And in some cases, people are dying explicitly because they're Christian. It just matters to what degree you imagine that to be happening and to what degree you sort of label everyone with that kind of Mm. motive. So, you know, I mean, we've been in the proximity of multiple suicide bombings and, you know, we've felt the punch in our chest of bombs going off and we've, you know, our teams have had, we've been shot at and all kinds of stuff like that. I don't know if that's the greatest risk though. Honestly, I I Mm. think, I think the greatest risk in some ways has been the the risk of playing it safe. Like the risk of choosing not to jump in, the risk of choosing to protect ourselves. Because what I've learned more and more and more over the last decade and a half of doing this is that we are truly the greatest risk to ourselves, the greatest threat to ourselves. We are not going to miss out on living life because of a terrorist or war or any of that stuff. We are going to miss out on living life because we get scared and we shut down and we put more padlocks on the door and take out bigger insurance policies and and we just move into a more insular place. And the more we put this grip on our life and try to protect it, the more we pretty much guarantee that we will stop living. We will Mm. stop living the very life we're trying to protect. And so the the great irony of the world is that the more we try to protect our lives, the more we actually miss out on it. And the more we release our lives and give it away, the more we live it to the fullest. Mm. That's beautiful. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis where during the middle of the war, he said, if we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, Let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. And I love that quote for the time that we live in because I think a lot of people live in fear. And living in fear isn't living at all. And if, if those things are going to come, like if there's a bomb that's going to come, it's going to come no matter what you do. So you might as well live life to the fullest. But I think that the beautiful and inspiring thing about what you and your team do is that while, you know, I've got fear in my own life, 
I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee, and for the most part, I'm safe. There's always, you know, risk in stepping out your door every day. But the truth is that you have more risk in your life and you guys are continuing to just show up and and be there. And one of my favorite phrases that I oftentimes see from you guys is this idea of love anyway or go anyway. It's it's this word of anyway. It's uh, It belongs in the middle of a sentence. It's like this thing happens. We're going to do this thing anyway. And I think that's a really beautiful idea. Where did that first begin? Like when you first moved to Iraq and you were starting preemptive love, what was the first anyway that you guys got to apply? I think it started, I think it developed over time. When we, when we first moved to Iraq, we certainly moved in with a, a fair dose of naivete about what Iraq was, what it was going to be like, what war was like, what what it would be like to live even more proximate to ground zero of the bomb factory called Fallujah. And we were surrounded by people, whether they be militia or military or whomever, private security, who generally took this posture of shoot first, ask questions later. And, and I knew them on all sides of the conflict, American, Iraqi, whatever. Shoot first, ask questions later. And I, it just didn't resonate with me. It just wasn't why, I didn't know that phrase before I moved to Iraq, but I encountered it, the phrase, and it, the worldview, a lot once living there. And I think for some people it was a coping mechanism. I think for some people it was a genuine philosophy of, of how to protect oneself. And it didn't resonate with me. I, didn't, I was trying to be true to my faith, and I didn't have a place for shoot first, ask questions later. And so we started this sort of cheeky alternative community to say, what if we could swim upstream against that whole idea in the middle of war? What if we could actually love first and ask questions later? Mm-hmm. I mean, both the shooter and the lover, to, to draw a very stark contrast, could end up dying. So neither one of these things guarantee our life. But, but which way do we want to go out? And this was a very simplistic worldview at the time, but it was my worldview at the time. What if we could love first and ask questions later? And in some ways, it was beautiful. I mean, it, it led us into some really hard places and some really tight spots that no one else was going. I mean, we were the first people, according to locals, to show up in Fallujah without guns. Um, we were... And, and other situations and places and, and things like that it got us into some beautiful trouble and some hot spots. But over time, we'd been forced to deal with life that came our way. We'd been forced to ask questions, not just save the questions for later because life happens and, and you can't help when you think you're about to be kidnapped but start to ask some questions. Was this stupid? Was this naive? Was this a foolish thing for me to do to my wife and kids? You know, so you you end up asking questions as life comes at you, and we were never cowboys or cavalier about it. We were just naive. We just didn't know all that life could throw our way in certain circumstances. And once you live through it, then you can't put those questions down. Like they mm. they just they stay with you. And so then the next time you face that situation 
you have questions, or, or, and you, you've worked through them, maybe, but you have them. And so love first, ask questions later stopped being a super motivating worldview by which to live. And we needed something else. We needed something that was more mature. When ISIS blew up inside Iraq and overran a third of the country and a lot of Syria and people were being beheaded and burned and captured. And I mean, it was just horrific, horrific time. And we had to decide, are we going to stay or are we going to leave? I mean, a lot of our colleagues and friends were very understandably fleeing the country. Ask questions later wasn't going to get the job done for us at that point. We'd seen too much. And what we needed was a more mature way forward to deal with the, the horror of the moment. And I guess what what emerged from that season was, my God, the, the world, this thing, this whole situation we're in is scary as all get out. Scary as hell is what we started to say. This is scary as hell. Love anyway. We weren't naive then any longer to what all this might cost us, nor were we any more cavalier or cowboy about it. We just wanted to acknowledge our fears, acknowledge the risk, count the cost up front, and then still encourage one another to keep taking that one step forward in hopes of unmaking violence itself. It's beautiful. Let's get nitty gritty what kind of work were you first doing when you showed up on the ground? What was the actual actionable love that you guys were taking? And how has that evolved? How has that changed with preemptive love? Very early on in, in my time in Iraq, maybe a couple of weeks in, I was going to this hotel every day, sitting in their cafe. And uh, hotels at that time were, you know, one of the few places in a city that had constant electricity and air conditioning or, or heating or internet or satellite TV. Um, you know, the whole city might be off the grid, but this hotel would have its mm. own private generator and stuff to keep going. And so a lot of us would descend on these hotels, journalists and, and others would, would use these hotels as our, our like we work space or whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I was there in the cafe one day and the, the chai guy, barista fellow, kind of saddled up to the table and put my cup of tea down and um, lingered over my shoulder awkwardly for a little too long until he finally got up the nerve to say, you know, Mr. Jeremy, you've been coming here for a while now. Can I ask you a favor? And I said, sure. And he went on to tell me about his little cousin. And he said, you know, she's about yay big now and, and held up his hand six years old off the ground. Uh, <laughs> but when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these decades of war and Saddam and UN sanctions and Al-Qaeda targeting our doctors and nurses, like we don't have anyone left in the country that mm. can save her life. You're an American. You've clearly come here to help us. Would you help my little cousin? Could, could you do anything to get her this life-saving surgery she needs? It, it wasn't on my radar. I didn't know. I tried to push back and just say, like, I, I don't know anything about taking children outside the country for surgery. I don't know anything about bringing surgeons inside the country to help. I'm really sorry. I'm a nice guy. I'm doing these other things to try and help people. But, like, that's not my thing. I just don't know anything about it. And he very humbly and winsomely kind of won me over and convinced me that she was on the brink of death and 
things really couldn't get any worse anyway, so maybe I should just at least meet the father and talk to him. And I liked that cafe, and I liked the hotel, and I didn't want to be, like, kind of exiled from my my co-working space. And <laughs> I, I really didn't have much of a choice except to just take the meeting in hopes that I would kind of satisfy this guy's concerns. And so a couple days later, come back to the cafe, and Dad meets me there. And when he walks through the front door of the cafe, uh, he's got his little girl, six years old or whatever, at his side. And, you know... I'm a goner before they even sit down at the table. So they sit down, and she's across from me coloring on a napkin, and he pulls out this paper report and tries to explain her condition to me. We don't share the same language at all, but at the bottom of the report in big block Latin letters, it says whole in heart. And I don't know, it's just a complex heart defect suddenly looked very simple, and I, I got a visual, you know, for this this problem that may be fixable and I agreed to just take the report and kind of make a few phone calls to a couple of American friends. And really, I don't even think I was trying to help her. I think I was trying to help myself in a lot of ways. Um, again, just kind of satisfy my own guilt and and get this, this situation off my back so I could move on. But it unleashed something in the process and ended up connecting with another American who knew how to take that next step to help her and and then I guess when the news got back to dad that we were maybe going to be able to help, then he must have shared my phone number or information with some others. And people just started calling my phone left and right, showing up at my doorstep, like finding me wherever as the bald American in, <laughs> in Iraq. And uh, we found ourselves very unwittingly being kind of this outpost of last hope for these last chance kids that, that had been passed over by a lot of the traditional aid solutions in the middle of war. So we ended up starting an organization really to help those kids who needed these life-saving heart surgeries in particular at the time. And we did that faithfully for years, bringing doctors and nurses into Iraq to brave bombs and bullets and try to develop long-term systems with Iraqis, build up their hospitals, build up their staff, train locals and leave behind an entire nationwide system that was far, far better than what we found. A lot of these kids we came to suspect, if not believe, Iraqis certainly believe that they were sick because of Saddam's chemical warfare and because of American weapons that were creating environmental fallout, causing these birth defects to, to happen in huge numbers. And and so we it became clear, like, we really, we're not just talking about a backlog of kids who need to be helped. We're talking about an ongoing genetic problem in the community that's going to need robust nationwide coverage to, to help. And we did that all out and ended up, you know, finding some phenomenal friends in the first lady of the country, the vice president, prime minister's office, top tribal and religious clerics. And um, then ISIS sprung on the scene in 2014, and uh, we were en route to Fallujah when the mayor of Fallujah was assassinated, and we got locked out of the city and spared that in some ways, but but the whole country just spiraled out of control for the next eight months until the fall of Mosul and what became this massive genocide against Christians and Yazidi people, and really ISIS became a household name that summer 2014 and with millions of people being driven out of their homes into the desert in the summer sun suddenly heart surgeries for a 
a couple thousand kids just didn't seem like the only thing that we could be giving our our hands to anymore. We we had stayed through some really hard years in Iraq and had built out this phenomenal network, and it just felt like we had a great weight of responsibility to consider whether we should be doing more than surgery at that time. And so we had a meeting in our office and asked the team, are we going to sit on the sidelines of this crisis that the entire world is is rallying for, or are we going to really dig in and, and leverage this whole last eight years of of runway that it feels like sort of we've been building up to this moment. And are we going to make that critical pivot to show up on the front lines against ISIS and provide people with food and water and shelter and jobs and everything they need to, to stay alive right now? And we had about a five second conversation about it <laughs> and uh, decided that we wanted to reinvent ourselves in some ways as an organization. So for the last three years, we've been doing that, just pushing into places like Fallujah and Mosul and, and other places across Syria when bombs are still falling and snipers are sniping and people are running away from violence. In many ways, we're trying to run in toward them to help them. Man. And then stick around over the long term to help them rebuild their cities after tyrants and terrorists have their way. And you guys are doing, you guys are creating long-term and short-term solutions for people in some ways, regardless of what their story is. Because you're showing up in cities that ISIS has been controlling and you don't know if somebody is formerly ISIS, currently ISIS, family member of somebody in ISIS, just a regular citizen caught and stuck in this city. Are you guys living out this idea of love anyway when you're providing f- food and resources for people? Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all, th- there's sort of two sides to this particular equation, and I think a lot of us get hung up on the first side. The first side is this phrase that we use, violence unmakes the world. We can see that everywhere we look. We see it domestically in America in social policies and just patently obvious situations across our land. We see it in world headlines. Violence unmakes the world. It doesn't just hurt people. It doesn't just leave scars, but it is, it's actually unmaking individual worlds, worldviews, my relationship to the world, and it's unmaking the world itself, violence. A lot of us just get fixated there, and we just get left trying to put Band-Aids on the bleeding and, and the unmaking. What we're trying to address is the other side of that equation. Then, therefore, if violence is unmaking the world, how can we unmake the thing that is unmaking the world? How can we unmake violence itself? How can we cause all the bad things to come untrue? And we're convinced that preemptively loving into those situations is the only way to actually disarm the violence itself that unmakes us. And so when we show up in a place like Fallujah or Mosul uh, across Syria, I mean, we're constantly confronted with situations that would have us be suspicious of the person in front of us. I mean, I've, I've stood in a number of rooms where you can see the beard shavings on the floor right alongside AK shells, where you know there were just ISIS fighters in this room, and they shaved their beards and, and walked out looking mm. like some other civilian, like any other civilian. And 
you know, I mean, we've we've stood in situations where we're serving thousands and thousands of people who who are starving to death and in need of food, and some some pocket of neighborhood women will will point out this ISIS will point out this woman and say, "Don't serve her. Her husband's with ISIS." Or one of our own, you know, workers will come up to us and say. Uh, these women are accusing this other woman over here or accusing this guy over here of being with ISIS. What should we do? And I mean, certainly in the case of the women who are not fighters, our, our default answer is love anyway, serve her anyway. Yeah, I mean, we, we have strict policies about not helping armed combatants who would you know, essentially just then be energized to carry out more armed combat against us. We would, we would engage them, but perhaps not give them the very thing that they need to continue to wage war against us. But, um, but we would certainly seek to engage those who mean to do us harm. It's not always clear cut. And I think the, the default solution, the default posture for us is to love anyway, um, when we when we find ourselves asking those questions, we just we have a bias toward love. We have a bias toward that kind of action. And I think I think there's something really beautiful about how gray that is. It's not black and white. It's not it's not clear cut. And you have to actually be on the ground. You've got to just make judgment calls. I don't. I think that there's a lot of beauty in that. There's something important about that. And it's. It's the, the beautiful thing about our community is that it's, it's Sunni and it's Shia and it's Christian and it's Iraqi and it's American and it's Kurdish and it's Arab. And it's a very rich tapestry of different people at different times who take the torch of preemptive love and lead the way. Sometimes the Americans might be skittish and our Muslim friends will lead us forward. And sometimes our Muslim friends might be skittish and our, our American or Canadian staff might lead us forward. And it, it really takes that beautiful community to kind of grope your way through this kind of darkness at times. When we were the first, and, and I think according to locals, the only international organization to show up in the Fallujah militarized zone when Fallujah was being liberated from ISIS control last summer, uh, we ended up working with the Ministry of Interior because we heard a lot of concerns from women that their men had been rounded up in mass and hadn't been heard from for days and days and days. And they were being held in a detention facility. Some of them were convicted of being ISIS members. Some of them were just being held on sort of perpetual suspicion. And the more we inquired with the Ministry of Interior and police force and military what kind of treatment they were getting, we were very concerned that they were not being treated well. And so we offered to come into this detention facility and, and try to just help these people. And um, they were not then active combatants, but many of them were on the brink of being released back into civil life. Uh, but they had been mistreated. They had been held extensively and accused of things that they may or may not have committed. And it begs the question, like, if you weren't radical, if you weren't a jihadist going into this scene, how embittered 
might you have become mm-hmm. during your time of intention, detention and what might you want to do to retaliate when you come out on the other side. I'm pretty quick to anger personally. And, and it's not hard for me to imagine going in, not thinking one way, not hating a certain group of people, being detained, tortured, whatever, for a period of time and coming out on the other side of that ready to do the very things that they had accused me of, but I actually wasn't thinking about doing prior. Yeah. And so we just see these sort of detention centers and things like this as hotbeds of, of risk for the spread of extremist ideas. So we went in, took food and clothing and fresh underwear and toothbrushes and water. And one of our Muslim guys saw this, this group of the convicted ISIS guys. They were in yellow jumpsuits, whereas a lot of the suspects guys were still in their normal civilian clothes. But the convicted ISIS guys, he saw a group of them who were actually very famous, like famous ISIS guys. And they were internet famous because of some of the videos that they had put out of beheadings and things like this. And he, he saw them and he recognized them and he made a beeline toward them. And they were handcuffed and on their knees and facing the wall, and he went straight to one of the, like, spokesman leader guys, and he said, you killed my friend, and I've come here to give you a drink. Hmm. And he pulled this bottle of water in the 125-degree Fallujah sun out of his back pocket, and the guy didn't even have his own hands to use, and he just gently and humbly, this Shia guy on our team, giving a drink of water to this Sunni ISIS murderer and no one on our team led him to do that no one it, it just genuinely came out of his muslim heart his muslim faith his Iraq his love for his country he believes like we do that while violence unmakes the world preemptive love unmakes violence wow that is beautiful wow um that's so interesting and I, and and I'm I'm speechless right now, uh, thinking about that story. And and I've even heard it before. And I, I saw the photo of that moment. I think that that's what changes the world. I think that that's ultimately what's going to solve problems. I don't think that, you know, the mother of all bombs is is going to stop what's happening in Syria. I think that showing up on the ground is. You have shown up on the ground. You've got this community of people who have shown up on the ground. And you're showing up on the ground in this really important situation in the Middle East on the forefront of what's happening with ISIS and terrorism. But the truth is that that's not the only place that people can show up on the ground. There's so many other places. And you and I have had this conversation about we all get to be on the front lines of something Tell me more about, you know, what that looks like for, for yourself. You know, what will you always be on the front lines in Iraq or do you see your front lines changing? And, and then for other people who, you know, they may never have the means to show up in Iraq, but they want to make a difference in things that are meaningful and important and powerful. How can they be on the front lines? You know, the organization was born in Iraq, born out of an Iraqi situation and meant first and foremost to address Iraqi needs. 
with a cheeky twist of phrase that was meant to sort of poke the eye of this idea of preemptive war and challenge us to see if we could have a wage preemptive love and if if we really could love first and ask questions later. And so all of it was very self-referential and and born out of that local situation we were in. But the more word got out about what we were doing and the more I started traveling and telling the story, the more I started finding everywhere I went that people were hungry for this permission and this language around it and this vision that wherever they were and whatever they were dealing with, even in the quiet bedroom of a marriage, that this idea of preemptive love was the only meaningful way forward. It's the only thing that disarms the conflicts of our life. And so for years we had been, you know, essentially saying on some level or another, join us on the front lines of this conflict in Iraq. And what we realized is that the the message and the mission and the purpose, the vision that we had was so much bigger than Iraq. I mean, we meant it when we said that we could unmake violence itself, that not just physical violence, but the violence that we met out to one another in our words and even our, our private thoughts can still be very violent and affect the way we relate to, to strangers and to the people we are around the most and maybe even love the most. We can still be very violent to the people we love the most. And once we shifted our our language and our worldview and our invitation to stop saying, you give us money and thereby join us on the front lines of Iraq or Syria or Libya or whatever, and started saying again, or instead, let's all together recognize that the front lines are where we live. And if we're going to make it forward, we're going to make it through, we're going to cause all the bad things to come untrue, we have to keep pushing each other and giving each other permission to live this life called preemptive love. And once the community, once we all started seeing ourselves as one community on this mission of preemptive love, this this community who in the face of politics and ethnic strife and riots and brutality and whatever, we're going to look at the scary things of the world and love anyway, I feel like we've we've just galvanized even more hearts and we find meaning wherever we go in the world because the front lines are where we have live wherever I am wherever you are we all have the opportunity to to unmake violence and remake the world through some kind of healing so no I don't think it's about Iraq I don't think it's about Syria or Somalia or Libya it's about it's about learning a certain kind of posture that would cease trying to protect myself as the be-all, end-all, and would learn that I'm actually the greatest threat to myself. And, and if I can release my life and release my, my obsession with self-protection and my obsession with my own ego and give myself away more and more and more, that's, that's where life is found. I am so glad that we finally got the chance to have Jeremy on the podcast. He has been on my list of dream guests since the very beginning of the show. I cannot state enough how much I admire this guy and 
his entire team at Preemptive Love. If you want to follow along with what Preemptive Love is doing, if you want to hear the stories and see the impact, make sure to check them out at preemptivelove.org and follow them online. They are one of my favorite organizations, communities, movements to follow because everything that they do inspires me so much and it really does help me feel less overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. I am so glad that you tuned into the podcast this week to hear such a beautiful, hopeful story. If you want more good news throughout the week, we've got a few more ways to do that. Number one is the good newsletter. Every single week, we send out five hopeful news stories from around the world to thousands and thousands and thousands of inboxes around the world. And oh my goodness, it's my highlight of every single week. It's so much fun to put together. It's so much fun to share. It really does set the week off to a great start. So go and subscribe to the good newsletter at goodnewsletter.org. On top of that, we also created a private Facebook group and you should totally join it. We'd love to have you there. We share hopeful news stories from around the world. We have conversations about things that matter. I would love to have you be a part of it. I think that the best way to get there is to just, because it's private, it's kind of secret, go to goodgoodgood.co, scroll down, click on the little Facebook link to like the little icon to Facebook. It'll take you right to the group. Uh, You can request to join and we'll approve you as soon as we can, assuming that you're not spam or something. And on that note, I think that that's a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week and we'll be back next week with another hopeful story from an inspiring person. Sound good? Sound good?